Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Okay, we are on. We are recording. Okay, let's get to the good stuff. What did you think of (laughs) Too Hot to Handle Season 2? I had the best Friday night. I didn't go out on Friday night so I could stay home and watch it. Really? Okay. So I started watching it because I was just like, there's nothing on TV at the moment. I was in Portugal. I couldn't get Love Island. I couldn't hack into Love Island (laughs) on the ITV because it was picking up that I wasn't in the UK and I was having a breakdown. And then I went on Netflix and was like, oh, I'll just try this. And I think with all of those shows, the first few episodes, you're kind of like, this is boring because you don't know who anyone is and you just don't, you're not invested in them at all or something. Mm-hmm. And then within the fourth episode, I was like, I can't turn this off. I watched it's it also on- so stupid. It's like especially stupid. It's so it's stupid. A stupid TV show. And so embarrassing to watch. I was like watching it on the plane and trying to hide my phone because everyone around me was just like, would have just been judging me, I think. It didn't. Compared to the first season, is no one was really that likable or memorable or charismatic or anything. I just couldn't stop watching it. Yeah, I'm not finished. I'm only kind of halfway through. It feels more kind of scripted and fake than most of those shows. You feel like you're watching... I do think people genuinely like each other and want to bus and stuff, but it feels, I don't know, I feel like you can see the machinations of the show going on a bit more. Yeah. It's also so funny how all these horny young single people got tricked into going onto a dating show thinking that they were like going to Party Island to have sex. I know. That was so funny. I thought, I think that Emily girl's so cute. A little muffin. Oh yeah. She's a muffin. Everyone thought she was black fishing, but then she said she's Indian, but her 
Like Why did they think tan. she was blackfishing? Because she was really tan. Lo- her tan looks like insanely yeah, fake so and so much. But it, it fluctuates. So I do. I think she is like two things can be true. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it does. It's a crazy like scene to scene. It's obviously between like it between washing off in her Yeah. Love Marvin and Melinda. Just like chaotic. Yes. Like BPD Hot. couple that always Hot break up man. and then fuck. Yeah. yeah. And then that weird has that woman come in yet who always bites her lip. Um, no, there's that Imrata girl. Yeah, the Imrata girl. Yeah, Christina. And she's always like, yeah, yeah. And she obviously was so scared of being booted out that she just f- fucked that guy, Robert. They're still together. Oh my they're one God. of the only couples they're fully in a relationship. It's really? so weird. Yeah. That's so weird. He's so gross. They have zero actual chemistry on the show. To me, it was so obvious that she just panicked and was like, I can't get yeah, booted off. So it's so funny they're together. Wow. Yeah, he has he has like zero chemistry. He's just And when so they're talking gross. about sex stuff, it made my skin cool. She's yeah. like, I want you to <laughs> kiss me. <laughs> I was like, ew. Yeah. Um, Little babies. Who else is on there? I like I thought that Chase guy was was I don't know, kinda hot. Wait, but... do you know what we haven't talked about? What? Well, have we talked about it? We have Sex Life. Yeah, we talked about Sex penis. Life. I finished, yeah, I fin- we did like a whole yeah, thing on the penis. I finished it as well. That was my Friday night double feature. Good or bad? Yeah, like good, good, bad. And they're like super together and really loved up crazy in real life. Who? Her and Penis Man. What? Yeah, it's really cute. Main character and Penis Man? Yeah. Oh, together. They're fully together and they're wow. always like, my soulmate, my soulmate, love you, XOXO, never thought because she's she's 41. She looks like she's 20 and she has two kids and she's divorced and they're fully in love and it's pretty, oh my God. actually pretty cute. Yeah. That's ridiculous. It gets so stupid. There's, I'll tell you because it's so dumb. There's like a scene where she goes to spice up the marriage. Her and her husband go to this weird sex party and then her husband gets a blowjob from their neighbor and she's crying. It's so weird. Oh, my God. I... <laughs> You're going to, like, think, oh, I can't say it. <laughs> what? <laughs> My boyfriend's mom listens to the fucking podcast. Oh, shit. No, it was, like, nothing. We were just getting a, a, a couple's massage. And I kept, then he kept making noises, like, thinking that he was getting a blowjob by the girl. And I kept wanting to sit up and check, but I was like, you're being crazy. And I just had my head in the little, like, in the little in the hole, in the hole, like, staring at my masseuse's feet, just thinking, oh, my God, my masseuse is in on it, too. Why? And he's just getting, like, a happy ending beside me. I, and then I was like, you're crazy. Why are you so crazy? And I couldn't relax the whole massage. Why was he making noises? Because he asked her to go really hard. <laughs> oh, like, ouch yeah. noises. But oh. kind of just like, mm. <laughs> One time when we were in Thailand, it was me, Fades, and her ex-boyfriend, and we all got lined up to get massages together, and we had to go topless, like, the girls and him, and there was one point where they span us all around at the same time and put us up on their knees, and they were, like, spinning us all around (laughs) in circles, all topless at the same time, right next to each other. It was so crazy. What? We were just laughing, being like, what the fuck is going on? So you guys were just sitting up fully topless? We were all three of us, and we were being held up by, like, their knees, and they were like rocking us all back and forth in like a clockwise motion at the same time and it was just it was so insane oh my god sorry about all the ice cubes um we've decided to i find that noise like nice (laughs) i guess (laughs) not everyone will but we've um everyone will we've 
ditched the wine for Campari sodas today. We were feeling yeah, fresh, we feeling? fresh and summery. European summer vibes. European. I can't believe they've done another season of Too Hot to Handle and not another season of Love is Blind. Is this like Quentin Tarantino where it takes them like seven years to make each season? Love is Blind is the best thing ever. I it's can't the best show that's ever been on Netflix. Yeah. I don't get why there isn't another one. Cam and what's her face? Still yeah, together? and Jessica. Wait, who's Cam? Um, Jessica with the dog. Yeah. <laughs> Jessica that, and her that dog. That cute are couple together. that got married. Yeah. yeah. Um, I know. I also really want another season of Indian Matchmaker. You have to watch it. Yeah, I have to watch it's it. I'm in like a pea brain consumption mode at the moment i can't handle anything serious yeah it's i think we, well we were talking on a zoom this morning about how you know for like sydney and melbourne i think it's just gone back into lockdown and we were talking about our lockdown and how you don't even realize the ways it affects your mental health because mm-hmm. you think that because everyone else is going through it or because you're like still getting up and still going to work and still doing all these things you're fine or you should be fine because everyone else is getting through it. Mm-hmm. But then you don't realize all the ways it's like messing with your head. And I really found like reality TV and watching just mindless shows was the only time I could completely switch off and just stop like mildly panicking about everything that exactly. was going on. And I would honestly recommend to people like we feel really bad for everyone that's back in lockdown because we, we obviously know from that long one in the UK it's really mentally taxing and awful. But like I think just – trying to keep off social media a lot or putting really strict parameters on it is important because I think when you're locked down, I think everyone's constantly feeling anxious. Like I know I've I've talked to friends in Sydney and Melbourne in the last kind of couple of weeks who've said what we talked about, which is that when you have all that downtime, all of your kind of anxieties about like, where's my life going and what am I going to do with my career and what do I want, which are all kind of normal angsty 20 to 30 crossover period things to think about the panic years that just comes to a head because you've got all this time to think and then if you're combining that with going on social media which is full of people looking like they know what they're doing it can be a really toxic combination because you're stuck at a standstill and panicking about stuff so it's like it's just not good to give room to those thoughts because they're thoughts we all have but if they're just given free reign for days and days on end it can end up being like quite bad for you mentally yeah I fully had like a massive breakdown during lockdown because my visa runs out in a year from now but at that time it was like a year and a half away and I was like I don't know what I'm doing I don't know where I'm gonna live I don't know what I'm gonna where I'm gonna go I don't know like whether whether I can even stay in this country or what's going on and was fully like having these huge conversations with people about like what's going to happen in a year from now, which I know is like something you need to start thinking about, but it's not something you need to be like fully panicking about and calling lawyers about in the middle of like a lockdown. But it's just because you start freaking out about your whole life and also because you're completely at a standstill. No distractions to interrupt those kind of thoughts, which normally if you had a bunch of stuff going on, the uncertainty is kind of exciting or whatever. It's just part of the way that you're living. But when you've got nothing else to think about and all this kind of spare time, it suddenly becomes, well, what are you going to do with this to like sort that out? It's also so funny that we've been doing this podcast for so long mm. and it, that it's gone through like all of these transitions in our lives. Like it's literally gone through, it's like ridden its way through a global pandemic of like you being in, we both lived in Sydney and worked in magazines I moved to LA, you moved to London, I moved to London. We like both went, you went back to Perth, I went to New Zealand, I went back to LA. Like it's gone crazy. I know, it's madness. 
but yeah we feel for you guys and message us i mean actually don't because we're not on instagram at the moment sorry yeah what was that about just like if you're <laughs> feeling low in yeah. lockdown and you want to talk to people this way we're going to launch the patreon soon so then you can actually all talk to each other like you used to on the facebook group yeah we were saying that yesterday that i feel like people who listen are missing that connection with yeah. other listeners which we are so excited to bring back and restart which will be really good anyway uh, anyway Onto a jam-packed slate of topics. Yes, beginning with uh, two people with big main character energy, Lena yes. Dunham and Carolyn Calloway. So Caroline Calloway got on a podcast to defend Lena Dunham's 2013 memoir, Not That Kind of Girl. The podcast is called Celebrity Memoir Book Club and it's hosted by Two New York comedians and they go through iconic celebrity memoirs so there's one that's also out at the moment by two new york comedians called celebrity book club with steven and lily and that one i find really funny mm. hadn't listened to this one before uh, but yeah we first saw that caroline colloway had gone on to defend it before we knew that these girls had done this sort of scathing takedown episode about lena's book yeah so Lena Dunham's book came out in, two, yeah, 2013, Not That Kind of Girl. We both read it at the time, but hadn't, like, revisited it. I can't really remember what it was about, but I remember loving her at the time, just being mm. obsessed with her, because it was when the first season of Girls, or second season of Girls had just come out or something, when the book came out, and I bought it immediately, and I remember, like, reading it. I was, I remember reading it in my backyard in Hawke's Bay with my lamb, <laughs> my pet lamb. I was with Fades in thailand and i just thought i looked so cool i like had it in my arm on the plane and in my arm when we landed because it just felt i just felt cool reading it yeah i remember not not hating it not loving it kind of feeling like there wasn't that much substance to it but liking her so being just a bit whatever but this basically i listened to the caroline colloway rebuttal before I listened to the original podcast and then I listened to the girls patreon which was like a second part about Lena Dunham and the whole thing was very it was ripping into the book really kind of aggressively about how self-absorbed Lena Dunham is and how privileged she is now she doesn't acknowledge it and it all just felt a little bit random to be having that take on something she wrote nine years ago in 2021 without including any context about how she's changed and grown as a person it had a lot of expectations that she would adhere to current social <laughs> mores, which felt weird. Yeah. And it just, yeah, it just kind of felt like a bashing session on Lena Dunham, which I find a kind of random thing to partake in nowadays. Like now it kind of feels like punching down to be mean to Lena Dunham. Mm. As opposed to if you did this at the time when everyone was obsessed with her, it would have felt like punching up. Yeah. And, yeah, Carolyn Calloway came on. She had DM'd them and said that she really hated their take on the book. And then they had her on the podcast and she came on and just said, yeah, essentially, like, the way that they're critiquing it is forgetting that it was written pre-Me Too. It was written before, you know, BLM really took off how it has. It was written before everyone was kind of examining their privilege and et cetera, et cetera. But I do agree, like, in parts and it is kind of similar to someone else we're going to be talking about in a bit who you guys can all guess very similar um, they're, they're actually very similar we're going to talk about leandra medine and her and lena dunham 
to me have always been pre all of this stuff. So similar. Archetypes of this specific kind of New York millennial white or white passing kind of narcissistic but people celebrate you for being narcissistic and then also criticize you because you're a bit like quirky yeah and a bit different thing and you just spend all this time endlessly navel gazing and it's it seems like it would be exhausting to be your friend because it's you're just so intense yeah and so consumed with your with yourself and your own experience it's the main character energy thing but yeah i think i did agree with the podcast hosts in a sense because similar to like Leandra, when Leandra says things like, I didn't know I was being racist. It's like Lena Dunham had girls, the first season of which got huge backlash for being super white. Mm -hmm. And then she was constantly being asked in interviews about her privilege and about diversity. And then like the book doesn't cover any of it because, but it's not like she didn't know about it. It's like one of those things where... You can prove she knew, which is, like, kind of frustrating. Yeah, I think – yeah, I agree. I think a lot of the criticisms that Celebrity Memoir Book Club girls make are valid. It just – it feels couched in this kind of gleeful cattiness or meanness, which makes it hard to kind of sympathize with their take on it. But, Mm. you know, I think they were saying, which I guess without realizing it is probably what I felt when I read the book, which is that – Lena Dunham kind of in these essays leaned into experiences she didn't have. Like she has talks about wanting to be a lesbian because she thought it was cool and quirky, but how she never <laughs> could cash a girl because she didn't want to or how she'd never ever had body image problems really. She once tried to throw up the morning after a dinner, but that's as far as it got in terms of like calorie counting and she puts this kind of jokey food diary thing in and she's kind of leaning into very real issues that women of her age when she wrote her early 20s face without having experienced them and then doesn't lean into any of the experiences she did have which were fascinating such as being the showrunner of a HBO show at 25 or being accused of only getting where you are because of family nepotism or coming from this extremely elite white liberal art world background and how that's equipped you to deal with the world I'm not saying that everyone should have a totally fully fleshed out understanding of all of those the nuances of those experiences at 25 but those were the things that she was in a position to speak to in quite an interesting way and she is obviously extremely intelligent so it was that thing where it felt very light on the details because she was leaning into non-experiences and away from actual experiences and I think she says something about that in the book that they brought up where she says she kind of uses faux vulnerability to hide actual vulnerability so showing her body was a way of acting like she was extremely vulnerable but Mm. for her it didn't bother her so it didn't actually feel like vulnerability and then she was hiding all these actual things yeah that she was scared to expose yeah I think the issue I had with the book when I read it in 2013 was I went into it either expecting it to be really funny or expecting to for it to be a bit deeper. And it was just kind of neither of those things. It was just midway in between them because, yeah, she was talking about either things she hadn't experienced or like writing lists about what was in her handbag. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think Caroline Collier was right in highlighting that a lot of the, you know, she brought up like the listicle was invented in 2010 and Lena Donna would have been writing this book in 2011, 2012. So her playing on it would have felt somewhat fresh and interesting at the time it came out but Caroline Collier really argues that she thinks that Lena Dunham's like masterfully 
picked the balance of the book and picked to have like plays on these modern digital things and done it in this like very intentional way whereas the book club girls think it's kind of filling space in a memoir that the person just doesn't quite have enough life experience or isn't willing to go there on the life experience that's Mm. relevant so she's padding it and I mean I haven't read the book in years so I don't know but yeah and also they bring up that at the time Lena Dunham was just about to start her second season of Girls and someone had approached her about a memoir and so she would have just been like yeah of course I've always wanted to write a book yeah then be like probably so busy at the same time but there was a there was an interesting conversation that all three of these women on the podcast had about who should write a memoir Mm. which I found really interesting so I think the celebrity memoir book club girls were talking about kind of had that attitude of you know you shouldn't write a memoir if you don't have enough life experience and Carolyn Colloway brought up you know a really archaic quote that was something like no one under the age of 40 should be allowed to write about their life but I think that there is such value in documenting your experience at any age. I remember the first time I questioned that was when I picked up Dolly Alderton's Everything I Know About Love and just the title alone, I was like, well, this is crazy for her to be writing about love when she's only, I don't even know how old she would have been then, like probably 27 or 26. But then I read it and was blown away by how relatable and how great it is because obviously there are a bazillion 26-year-olds, which is a, a market for like you writing about your experiences at that age. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's difficult because I remember we were saying about Florence Given and like the backlash to that whole drama where we thought maybe was it to do with the fact that she'd been given this platform to write this book at age 21 and that some of the the backlash that came from accusations of borrowing stuff from Slumflower came down to the fact that there's a very limited scope of what you can write about as being your experience at 21. So there was this inevitability of like crossing over or something. But like we said at the time with that as well, that had this huge, huge, huge audience and it unquestionably changed tens of thousands of women's lives by reading about their life experience in a way that changed their perspective. So it does feel stupid to kind of put, you know, parameters on who can and can't write a book. And Lena Dunham's book obviously did find a huge audience for people of her age. It feels, I think the thing that feels random is it's a book that so obviously speaks to the age of her when she wrote it and to the time she released it and to kind of suddenly look at that now and then slam it as if she wrote it yesterday at her current age feels random, particularly because now Lena Dunham has obviously been through a lot of genuine adversity. Like she had to have her uterus removed, have a hysterectomy. She had a pain killer addiction, like a drug addiction. Found out she's infertile. Found out she's infertile, tried to have children, like lost the last egg that she tried to harvest, went through like a really heartbreaking breakup. We've, you know, she's written really beautifully and with a lot of nuance about all of those experiences now. And that's why it just felt jarring to hear people slamming her as if we were stuck in this like time warp of her in the past. Because she does seem to have developed and grown and have a lot more self-awareness than she did in the past. Yeah. And I still think she can be so frustrating because yeah. I still think she, she's insanely self-absorbed. She's still. insanely self-absorbed, which is really, really frustrating because you just want to like smack these people and just be like come on why can you not why can you not why can't you see, see? yeah i know like she see? i saw she put up this thing when britney spears thing happened and she put up this giant like 2000 word essay on her instagram in a slider thing about her experiences and how they related to britney spears experiences and on one hand i get it you're yeah. a really famous writer you talk about pop culture you've experienced fame at a young age and the things or whatever 
but at the same time you're kind of just like oh does everything have to be like made somehow about you i know but it's literally white woman syndrome. It's just white women syndrome. And there are, again, a lot of very valid critiques against Lena Dunham and the type of person that she is or the type of person that she represents. But I found it kind of painful to listen to that podcast about her book because, I don't know, I have this certain level of defensiveness for her because I think that people who decide to apologize and people who decide to be like, oh, God, I'm sorry, I didn't realize, <laughs> just get so – people just go for their jugular so hard mm. and just beat them and beat them and beat them down, especially white women on white women because they think it's, like, cool and interesting and quirky, whereas someone like, you know, a Joe Rogan or something who arguably have done much more offensive things just refuse to engage and don't give a fuck and then they're just always fine and have this really loyal legion of fans – and I just think Lena Dunham's really talented. Girls was amazing. Yeah. And this so fact talented. that she's just the punchline in every single person's joke all the time just feels kind of I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, just just boring. I just find yeah. it boring. I don't I don't I think she's beyond critique, but I'm just I just don't get the complaining about Lena Dunham in twenty twenty one thing. It just feels mean spirited. Mm. Just people still hating on someone for or just not interrogating why they hate someone and hating on someone because it's the cool thing to do or because they've said, like, one annoying thing in the past is just so kind of, um, like, e- such an easy thing to do. Yeah. And I do, I think with Lena Dunham, I just really feel strongly that people feel entitled to mock her or have a go at her because she doesn't, like, fit these traditional beauty ideals. I think people feel like she's more fair game in a way that they wouldn't about, I don't know, No, yeah, a probably. supermodel or something, Kendall Jenner or something. Like yeah. I just think people feel like more entitled to go after her in this weird, gross kind of high school mean girls way that I don't like. People had to go at her for um, like she was standing on the red carpet with Brad Pitt or something and she she looked like she was trying to kiss him but he turned away and everyone was just mocking the shit out of her being like that's so embarrassing. And it's like if she was – yeah, I don't know. Margot. Margot, or yeah, or, or some, yeah. some like, ridiculously good-looking person. You would never be mocking her as if Brad Pitt's disgusted by her. She had to – she had literally had to release another photo and be like, that wasn't what was happening. Yeah, I, yeah, totally. The, the way that these podcast hosts were talking about – I'm, like, trying to think of some stuff that they said where they'd read out lines that were really obviously a joke, that were funny – because she's funny (laughs) she's funny yeah and we're like just being like what the fuck is she even talking about what the fuck and i was like like she does aggravating things obviously but i just yeah we all agreed that in like 2014 and i've moved on what I found really funny about it was Carolyn Calloway. Um, I don't. And it's like you're on team Caroline, Caroline. Calloway. Yeah. And then when she's talking, you also realize that she's like insufferable because she's yeah. like, according to the 15th century philosopher, a memoir is a. I was like, dude, just shut the. Can everyone just shut the fuck up? <laughs> oh, pea brains all in a room. I know. Sorry, what were you about to say? Yeah, I was just going to say she was just like cracking me up. So, oh, one thing I liked that Caroline said is the podcast co-host had a go at 
Lena because they thought she, they literally were like, she wasn't being honest with her entire book because she later came out and said she was addicted to pills, but she didn't put that she was addicted to pills in her book. And Caroline was like, um, a huge thing with addiction is uh, not even admitting it to yourself and lying to yourself about the fact that you're addicted to something until you're not. Like, it's it, it doesn't make any sense that she would write it in a book in 2012 when she didn't even come out and say she had an addiction until, like, 2017. Exactly. And they were saying, you know, I liked Lily Allen's memoir more because she admitted that, like, a stalker broke into her house and, like, went juicy on these details. And it was, I don't know. I was just like, I don't... Maybe they just want juicy celebrity memoirs and don't care about it. But I'm like, Lena Dunham's book wasn't that. It wasn't a biography about herself. It was a literary book of essays by someone who writes for The New Yorker and Harper's Magazine and has a Emmy-winning HBO show. Like, mm. On to another HBO show. Oh, my God. <laughs> the Segways. Uh, Gossip Girl 2.0 has dropped. Yes. And we've watched the first episode. I mean, there isn't so much to unpack, but there there's isn't. a lot to talk about in the sense of we haven't really talked about this yet. <laughs> yeah, what did you what did you think? I loved it just as a as it being what it is, which is just a reboot of a really stupid show that we all loved when we were young and kind of trying to modernize it but stick to the heart of what it originally was, which was like a dynasty-esque kind of soap it's like a slightly more polished soap drama yes it's meant to be stupid and ridiculous and the storylines are insane but you just love it because it's nuts and i think that's a hard thing to pull off in 2021 where people are so conscious of power and wealth and elitism and privilege and class Mm. and race and all of these things that we've been talking about i think it's kind of a difficult thing to make work but I mean, it's hard to tell from my first episode, but I feel like they kind of nailed that balance yeah, really I was, well. I was um, I was watching it and I was trying to work out what was so different from the first series. I really loved that they really referenced the first series. So yeah. it's like not a reboot, it's just a continuation. So they talk about Blair and Chuck and yeah. Serena and all the all of the people at the school don't really know who they are. They're just like, oh, these like... It's so... What was that bit that was so funny where Tabby Gemmonson is just like... Think about all the people that have been here. Someone, Colson Whitehead, Nate Archibald. Oh, my <laughs> it was like, God. He loves so much. It's just so stupid and camp, and I love it. Yeah. So I really loved that. And then I loved that, obviously, Gossip Girl's on Instagram now. You also know who Gossip Girl is from, like, 10 minutes into the first episode, which is obviously the biggest issue with the last series, is that they never had any idea who Gossip Girl was and then realized they, they needed to. they just a wheel and was like, Dan. <laughs> and then, yeah, realized they needed to, like, figure it out somehow. That was the worst. Honestly, I feel like I could have come up with a better plot than that. You should have been made. 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, there were so many people it could have been. So funny. Other than Dan Humphrey, <laughs> the worst, grossest human. <laughs> that guy in it looks like Dan Humphrey. Yeah, the boyfriend. I was of- like, he's hot. And then I Googled it and he's 21 and I felt like Jeffrey Epstein. I felt yes. disgusting. <laughs> I know I was talking about that when I was watching um, the football with one of my friends as like one of the players came on. I was like, oh, he's a bit hot. And she was like, he's 19. I was like, oh, my God. I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, I looked up all the ages because it's really interesting because they really vary. So the girl who plays Jordan, who's the main character, is 
26 and then uh, 27, she's our age. Mm-hmm. And Tavi Gevinson, who plays the teacher, is 26. So she's the head teacher and she's is younger she than the time. 26. Yeah, she was 12 when. Oh we were my God. 18. <laughs> so she plays, that's, it's kind of a tongue in tongue in cheek joke, I think. Because yes. I thought that, I assumed that she was going to be a cast member. Yeah. I think they were like playing on that expectation. So it, they go from 18, the sister is 18. The blonde one, Emily Lind, is 18. Right. Is 19. It's like variants. And then that guy that was in High Fidelity is like 26. Yes. But they all kind of look the same age. So that's why I felt caught off guard by thinking that Dan Humphrey 2.0 was sexy. Yeah, well, in my defense with the football, is I always think when I watch, you know, rugby or any of these sports, because when we watched it when we were kids... I felt like all of the guys were so old. Yeah. They were all like our dad's age. And now I'm like, God, we're just getting so old I that know. we're now watching these sports that had David Beckham as their main person when we were young. And he's like, felt like our dad's age, but he obviously isn't. How, I don't know how old he is. <laughs> What's I don't going know what I'm on? trying to say. I'm trying to say we're no, really you're, old. You're saying that we're old. I know. Young. Yeah. This is what my mum actually said to me when we were having a go at Zach Braff for being horny for Florence Pugh. She was like, what you don't understand is when you're 45, you don't feel 45 and you yeah. still think 25-year-olds are yeah. hot because you don't feel different. Yeah. I said that today because yeah. um, a guy followed my friend on Instagram who we'd like randomly met at dinner the other night and I said on the phone to my boyfriend, he's like, an old man. He's like 40. And then I was like, oh my God, that's like not 40. Yeah, I, was like, I was like, that's like our peers now. 40 year olds. I know. Wildness. Okay. So what did you think? Yeah. What did you think of the show? Um. Okay. So I kind of, I feel like I watched it in a bad light because I watched it really, really tired and I was watching it kind of knowing we were going to talk about it. So mm-hmm. it wasn't I wasn't super relaxed. I mm-hmm. wasn't. I was just kind of like, got to get this over with. Wasn't a playful. Yeah, watch. it wasn't a playful watch. And then I, I feel like I don't really like. I can't get a good vibe from the main character. Yeah, Jordan. Um, Julian. Was, sorry, I called her Jordan before. It's Julian, which was throwing me off a bit. She just, I couldn't feel. Don't know something for her but i love i love like the guys in it yeah i and liked i thought whitney peak who's yes. the younger sister has very like pr- protagonist yes energy because mm-hmm. this is the thing that they did so well in the first one is that they just birthed they just unearthed and birthed these four mega stars and it obviously took a minute for that to happen but you know you'd never seen blake Lively before you'd never seen leighton meester before you'd never seen who's that sexy one nate what's his name chase crawford before and you'd never seen that other guy and that was (laughs) exciting because they had like i don't know yeah but it took a minute for it to happen so i feel like this will happen with these this gang it's just going to take us a few episodes agree i I really liked it the only issue i think i had with it was that when i was watching it i was like why doesn't this feel like the old gossip girl and obviously i know it's a new it's a new gossip girl and it's different but it kind of had that the muted tones were kind of throwing me you know how Mm. it has that like well, the, I didn't get this from my own brain. I got this from a Vanity Fair article where I was like, that's it. And what they said was the way that it's shot or the the way looks more like su- succession or something. Mm. It's lost that bright kind of campy thing that yeah, Gossip Girl had right. where it was super 
I don't know, it just felt young and carefree and bright and vibrant. And this feels a bit more vampy and everyone's wearing black and it's a bit more cool and like... Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I... It, it was never cool. Like, you never... When people talk about the fashion in Gossip Girl, as far as I'm aware, no one wanted to dress like those characters. What they were yeah. wearing was nuts, but it was fun to watch because it was so ridiculous. Yes. But no one actually wanted to dress like Serena or Blair. It was just leaning into a certain type of thing. So, like, in this, they're all very, very well-dressed. And like you say, they're very cool. It's like Evan Mock, who's like a Frank Ocean protege, and mm. it's all just very – and there is there is things like that I like because I feel like that is right in terms of what – It would be like. It would be like now. Mm. And I loved how they had, like, um, cameos from Lindsay Peoples-Wagner and Mel Odenberg and – um, there's a guy in like a Bodie jacket and obviously Christopher John Rogers. Like it's obviously really tapping into the fashion-y element, which was cool. Um, but I'll be interested. I think the biggest thing for me is that the first one was so tone deaf to any kind of like political, nuanced, cultural conversations at all. Like how? Just like it was just a bunch of white rich people running oh, around. Oh, sorry, New York. sorry. Yeah. I thought you meant the, this first episode. Oh, this no, the, first, like, what? the original Gossip Girl. <laughs> yeah. And it's that was the thing I think that people liked about it was it was just so ridiculous. Like Blair becomes the princess of Monaco and, <laughs> oh you know, God, it's just yes. so dumb. Yeah. Um, and, and that's like the original Sex in the City. And now yeah. there's going to be a reboot. And if they just go so crazy, politically correct and aware and stuff, it's just going to take all the fun out of Sex in the City. Exactly. I'm interested to see how they what they do with this. Because I think it's totally capable. You can have an amazingly cool, young, diverse cast and then also have them all just be self-absorbed assholes that don't engage in politics in any way or just pretend to to virtue signal on Instagram. Like that would be funny and interesting to do. Yes. But I'm not. Exactly. I am i didn't get the vibe from the first episode that it was that self-aware. So I, I'm, I guess, a bit concerned. Yeah, that they'll go like – so far into politics and having all these intense storylines that... Well, I think with, like, Euphoria, you know, it was successful with Gen Zers because it spoke to, like, their experience in, like, a non-condescending way. The Gossip Girl is obviously never going to do that. So I feel like if it just leans into the fact that it's never going to do that and that's kind of what's great about it, then it will be amazing. And I do feel like in the first episode it it, it kind of did that. Like mm. it was all just frothy and silly and funny and fun and stupid. Mm. So we'll just have to see, I guess. But I'm definitely going to be watching Same. the whole season. It's making me want to rewatch the old one. Oh, is I that love, how you I've, feel? Yeah, I've rewatched the old one a few times. Same. Uh, yeah, the last time was when I... I think I just moved to Sydney and we'd just become friends and I was like binging Gossip Girl like crazy. Yeah, it's the best. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? 
Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Like this past summer was like the summer of learning. I remember sitting in the car with AB and my kids thinking to myself, like, I did not grow up poor. I like actually grew up rich. And but did you think you were rich when you were growing up? No, I thought I was poor. That's what I'm saying. I, and like I looked at AB and I was like, AB, I don't think I was poor. And he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And I was like, no, no, like I... I thought I was poor. <laughs> Welcome everybody to to the interview of the decade. Almost as culturally ground, I would argue more culturally groundbreaking than the Oprah Mixit interview. Yes, and probably had a more rampant listenership in terms of like people actively caring. Yeah. Um, so last week, uh, Rachel Amondi, who's a designer and has this really cool podcast called The Cutting Room Floor, which, um, I don't know if you've listened to it before, but I've been a fan of for a while. No, I haven't. She released an episode called The Tanning of America featuring Leandra Medine, and it is a hour and a half, 87 minute long interview part one of two parts the second part will come out next week july 21st in which rachel speaks to leandra about the closure of man repeller the fallout last year host black lives matter where man repeller and leandra medine specifically faced a lot of backlash for kind of virtue signaling support for black lives matter after they had stood down their kind of most senior public-facing black member of their editorial team, Crystal, during the pandemic and had never addressed it. And basically they kind of had a weird rebrand and then just suddenly shot. And this is the first time Leandra Medine has kind of specifically spoken about this. It was obviously, I think, from the perspective of Rachel, who is black, she was giving her a huge courtesy by giving Leandra Medina a platform with which to speak to people about the learning she had done or the lessons she'd taken away from that experience last year. And I guess to serve as a kind of mea culpa about her failings and the ways that other white girl boss hashtag type leaders in the fashion industry and elsewhere could like learn from her mistakes. And instead it was just this insane 90 minute monologue about Leandra Medine talking about herself. <laughs> yeah, it was basically so in the beginning of the podcast, Rachel talks about how she initially recorded with Leandra in 2019, but that Leandra was so rude that she completely canned the tapes and never planned on airing anything with her. Then in 2020, after George Floyd died, Rachel said, like in quotes, like clockwork, Leandra reached out again and wanted to re record. So they you know, sat together, recorded a whole episode together, and then 
Rachel says Leandra called her crying and begged her not to air it and asked to re-record again. So not only is that really frustrating for Rachel having to go through this three times with Leandra and it sounds like and by the end of this interview like the exhaustion of even listening to it as opposed to conducting it yeah you just can't imagine and even how Leandra said at the start she was like oh I'm so sorry I feel like we've had conversations about this podcast a thousand times there would have been so much back and forwards and like weird pedantic <laughs> questions and you know she Leandra even says in one part can we cut this out if we need to and Rachel just goes yeah <laughs> and it's like the amount, just even even Leandra being that kind of oblivious to, to making a black woman sit through her ramblings three times about something that's supposed to be about, like, learning about why you shouldn't do that. And then Leandra kind of used the whole thing kind of like a um, therapy session. Yeah, it felt like... It- so there's so much to unpack so much. with this. I've listened to it three times now. To try and get my brain around it. My first initial... I've only listened once. Okay. But I listened after having a weed gummy. Okay. So that's like two. Yeah. So that's like 2.5 at least. Yeah. yeah. I was just, I was like so holding my ears listening. with my earpods, listening with it on like high volume, yeah. pausing and writing notes. Obviously the initial first takeaway, which I think is everyone's first takeaway, is the kind of staggering lack of self-awareness, lack of understanding of the context of why she's there and the mental gymnastics she's gone to to not address anything that she was accused of doing in last year. And I think that by the end of it, I felt drained (laughs) and exhausted and just like ground down to the ground by this kind of barrage of navel-gazing and self-obsession and obviously I say that as, like, a white person who's, you know, it's not speaking to my experience of the world. You know, uh, Rachel says something about, you know, this archetype of this very typical white fashion woman that comes from a very privileged background and is incredibly self-absorbed and is, is quite unable to see the world outside of herself. And then she says something like, and in the worst case scenario, she's your boss. And I think that Everyone can speak to having, you know, nightmare bosses at work or whatever, but like the added element of her not only being accused on multiple fronts of making her workplace really inhospitable and unwelcoming to women of color, the fact that she then got on a woman of color's podcast to talk about how she wasn't actually mistreating women of color, she was a quote unquote equal opportunity asshole. Like, I just can't even imagine how exhausting it must have been for the host and for like black listeners who've actually had to experience this in real life yeah so leandra says literally in the first five minutes or something that she's not racist she's just an immature asshole and a bad boss and it's like if that's where you're at i think that the kind of the thing that we've been talking about off is you know, it's very easy to, like, pile on Leandra because she's literally fed herself to the wolves by releasing Mm -hmm. this interview. But then the crazy thing is, is that she didn't release this interview without a lot of thought. She's obviously an anxious person. She's recorded this twice, this Mm -hmm. particular one twice, three times with Rachel. And she's a smart person Mm -hmm. who's launched Man Repeller, who has is obviously very clever and it just shows and is obviously introspective like doesn't have any problem interrogating her own thoughts and feelings yeah and this person this is where they're at with their like anti-racism learnings after literally being cancelled their entire company shutting down because of something how little she's learned and how little kind of 
time and energy she's put into learning and then thinking she can come on this podcast and like the producer said because Rachel and parts you know got her producer on who was editing it and who had contacted her saying I'm so frustrated and exhausted by editing this I just can't even believe you gave this woman the time of day and he comes on and he says she's so clever it's almost like she thinks she can trick us into feeling sorry for her instead of actually doing the work she's Mm -hmm. gonna she's just gonna come on and make us put on this like kind of victim mentality and, and and confuse us all enough to feel sorry for her which is just like completely underestimating the intelligence of of people yeah he i think she said at the start this interview is like below the iq level of my audience mm. which is obviously scathing but it is true like you just said it had the feeling of the smart kid in school who can get away with not studying for a test and then bullshit their way through by kind of waffling on quasi-intelligently about other stuff and it kind of felt like she'd come armed with these very specific talking points that she could use to deflect like the phrase equal opportunity asshole or like I'm going to admit that I was a bad boss or I'm going to admit that Mm. I was um you know she talks about being embroiled in comparison culture and how she became so obsessed by looking at people like Sophia Amoruso and Emily Weiss and this kind of girl boss culture became so obsessed with growth that she didn't take the time to become a better boss and she didn't learn how to treat her employees properly or with respect and that she looks back and regrets a lot of the ways that she acted now like at the time a lot of the stuff she said I try to listen back to it and try and remove the context and just listen to what she said and a lot of the things she said are well thought out and interesting and speak to things that you and I have talked about and are very relevant, but they're not relevant to why she's on that podcast. And it felt kind of like when Kevin Spacey was like, I'm gay when (laughs) when that guy accused him of sexually like harassing or assaulting him where he just misread the room and thought that would cover for it. It's almost like Leandra was – thought if I admit that I was a terrible boss and kind of an asshole and a bad person I'm a bad person I'm not as good a person as I thought I was and And I'm immature and have so much to learn that that's going to trick the audience into thinking that you're not therefore also capable of of fostering like a racist environment at work and the fact that she talked about being a racist in that binary term I was like you haven't even read fucking white fragility (laughs) like I don't know what, like, quote-unquote anti-racist work she's done, but she's still in this mindset that it feels like all of us got out of last year. We all kind of had this realisation, most of us unprompted, not because we got called out and cancelled, but because we were just reading. We realised that it wasn't a question of are you racist or not racist. It was a question of we're brought up in a society that promotes whiteness to the detriment of blackness and brownness and we have to do active unlearning to step away from the ways that we are basically inherently kind of white supremacists. Yeah, and complacent in this. And complacent in it and it infiltrates every single part of every industry that we're all part of and our job is to just look at our patch of grass and how we can fix that. I don't understand. That's not a complicated concept (laughs) and I don't understand how she's been through the experience she's been through in the last year and has is not even at like the start line it's more like staggering than anything else yeah and like I think one of the main takeaways I got from it was seeing it as just this perfect example of white fragility in action Mm. it was it was just Leandra like deflecting from every bad thing she's done and instead focusing on any kind of trauma or anything she perceived as being a trauma like the craziest parts and it was when she was talking about how 
she always thought she was poor because she was lived in the um, kind of worst suburb but in the upper east side and she went to a private school but she was she didn't live in the apartments her friends lived in and like yes that is her experience and I can understand why at a private school and at high school you would feel uh, a bit left out if you couldn't afford to do the things your friends were doing or if all your friends were going on all these crazy holidays and you couldn't go and yeah her parents are immigrants to America and that is all kind of relevant experience but it's not relevant experience in this conversation and in the wider context of society like the issue is systemic racism how you treated like your black and brown employees how you move through the world and you have a huge platform and a huge responsibility and she's instead deflecting and going well when I was in high school I couldn't afford to you know I'd used all of the allowance my parents gave me and I couldn't afford to go to this really expensive restaurant and that's when I realized I was poor and I was like what are you even talking about I know it's um, crazy it's shocking I I was I, I felt shocked that a person with with that little self-awareness could actually function in in society as a human being and I know that sounds dramatic but it 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 wasn't anger at her or like what I was genuinely baffled that someone could helm a multi-million dollar company and run a new media agency and helm a team of 35 people and expand something over the course of 10 years and write books and do all this stuff and have so little gap between like I think something that I feel like something that we all go through and maybe we don't all go through this in our sort of early to mid twenties is realizing that your experience of the world as you, who's looking at the world as someone who's got this little kind of movie playing in the head of their life, that everyone around you has their own version of that and yours is no more important than theirs. And you feel like it's important to you because you're experiencing it, but everyone else's is just as valid and worthy and, you respect that when you interact with them and listen to I, – I feel like I realised that maybe when I was 23 and it kind of blew my mind, but I didn't realise that some people just didn't ever realise that. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, like you said to me yesterday, it's kind of like Man Repeller succeeded in spite of Leandra, not because of Leandra. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the team around her that she employed managed to make that – managed to keep it going and that kind of is what happened in, in the past few years her team members got these huge followings and became their own personalities and, and and became their own voices and and did really well in that respect and that's why crystal when she was fired there was such huge backlash which kind of started the downfall of man repeller because the writers became so um synonymous with the brand which was kind of why it's, it succeeded and how we we've talked about a couple of weeks ago how white women and you know in leandra's case very white passing women in particular just always try to find traumas to mm. have something to talk about and because Leandra didn't have really yeah. a trauma that she could find she was just making them up yeah. so she was talking about she literally says in this podcast that she was scared about becoming homeless and I get I do understand that there's like there is nuance to this because she's she's from immigrant parents but from my understanding her immigrant parents are super rich and always were. And always yeah. were. And there's like the scarcity mentality or, or whatever. But she, she talks about how she was scared about becoming homeless and just fails to mention that her entire life they had a holiday home in the Hamptons where she spent half her time. Yeah, as well as a huge Upper East Side apartment As well in New as a York. huge Upper East Side apartment. I think this is the thing that's 
something listening to it. So now, okay, so we've now gone into like the first obvious, obviously has to be said elements of this interview that are just surface level what I think everyone else thought and we obviously thought. And then there is nuances to it in the sense that to me she's obviously someone who has is extremely, extremely, extremely anxious to the point of being neurotic. There was a bit where she talked about you know, I was at a hotel on a press trip in Japan and I woke up in the middle of the night and I was just panicking and I was like, oh my God, this is all going to fall apart. This is all going to fall apart. And I called my husband and he said, oh my God, and got the our head of accounts on the phone and they said, no, we're doing fine financially. What are you talking about? And she said, no, 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 it's all going to fall apart. And he didn't understand. And I just felt like no one was seeing me. I was like, that's an anxiety attack. You were having a panic attack. Like that's just anxiety. Yeah, how do you not know that? Yeah, yeah, like because we both have generalized anxiety. I've seen psychologists for it. Have I think both tossed up getting medicated for yeah, it? Yeah, I just maybe. took risky remedy before we jumped on the pod. Yeah, I I understand that from before I was diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. I didn't understand I would, you know, walk around thinking I was about to be crushed by a like concrete block in the construction zone on the way to work and would be, you know, you're creating catastrophic situations in your head and they feel really real to you, but it's hard, but no one sympathizes because they're not real, Mm. (laughs) but yet they feel almost as if those things are actually happening. So in that sense, I do really empathize with her because I get what she's saying in the sense of she's saying, I was having these feelings and no one was validating them because they were saying they weren't real, but they were real to me. But I don't know if it's something where she just hasn't had like the right diagnosis or she hasn't seen the right people and no one's like explained it to her in that way. In that sense, I feel kind of – I do feel sorry for her in like a lot of senses in this interview. It's not just this case of Leandra Medina equals bad, blah, blah, blah. There's a, a degree to a lot of her neuroticism that makes me feel sad for her because it, it feels like she's not sort of regulating her mental state very well. And I think that the guy, the in, uh, the editor, Sebastian, says this where he's like, she's trying to fool you that she's someone that's emotionally healthy in the way that she's phrasing certain things or the certain words that she's using, but she has, like, very little emotional intelligence. And I, that was kind of something that jumped out to me listening back maybe by the third time where I was like, just try listening to this as just a person with, like, mad, mad, mad anxiety and it, it, it kind of makes it make sense more even mm. though it doesn't it doesn't justify it yeah i think surprisingly there haven't been that many good takes on this interview the cut did a piece which was quite scathing and kind of like mean snarky, girl yeah and snarky um and then it was kind of funny looking at all the comments and heaps of people who were commenting on it but i don't know it, was just, it just felt like a big leander pile on which we which is one of those things where again i think you said this earlier where about Lena Dunham, where when people apologize or when people put themselves forward, everyone piles on them because they're an easy target. And Leandra here has made herself an easy target, but she wasn't she wasn't like forced to go on this podcast. She chose to go on this podcast <laughs> yeah. because delusionally she thought it was a she, she thought she'd learnt, and it's and it's embarrassing that she thought that, and it, this should be a, hopefully the wake up call she needs. But I just don't even know if it will be considering literally getting cancelled and her entire company failing wasn't. Um, but it does feel a bit, like, easy to, yeah, just just have a go at her when likely pretty much every other influencer, 
every other white influencer and every other white person in Leandra's circles have done the exact same amount of work as her, which is basically zero. None. Yeah. Or don't put themselves up to the scrutiny of talking about it because... They'd rather just switch off. They'd rather just switch off and not engage and kind of dog whistle to an audience that also feels bored by it or doesn't want to engage with it and that's just this quietly happening system but obviously having said that it doesn't feel like Leandra got on and was genuinely trying and clumsily failing it felt like she was trying to trick people into thinking Mm -hmm. she had when she hadn't the only other kind of article that I read that that I think had some really good takes in it was an article on a website called pop dust and in it, the writer says, the cutting room floor exposed the difference between actually experiencing oppression and marginalization and the perception that you has, have, and the perception that you have. Leandra has yet to grasp the concept and that dissonance was at the core of her empire of empowerment, a platform which really just masqueraded itself as a celebration of the other while pandering for approval from the mainstream, mm. which I find really interesting in, in it as well. The writer Langer says... You probably know a woman like this who ordered all the anti-racism books from the black bookstores, maybe even read them, but still feels like black people on the internet are too mean. Cancel culture is the real scourge of the digital age and that all the protests of the summer weren't about a literal murder, but rather to make people like her feel bad. So I found that really interesting. And I guess, yeah, the, the main takeaway, which I sort of talked about before, was just about how it's, I think it's, something that I've only realized in recent months and we've talked about it a little bit on the podcast and we even just talked about it before with Lena Dunham really quickly was the yeah like the white woman thing of just constantly trying to find traumas like it's I find it really funny now when I think about how a couple of years ago on this podcast we were all joking about how everyone goes to therapy and like Yes, some people definitely need therapy and there are proper reasons to go to therapy, but just how it was kind of this like white woman joke of my therapist says and my therapist says this. And it's like, we're so privileged to even be able to afford therapists Mm. and to talk about our issues. And, you know, I just felt like Leandra was just basically being like trying to find anything she could to have something to be a trauma. And, And like how she, you know, even when she's firing someone, she's the one crying and the black woman being fired is having to comfort her is like yeah. the, the prime example of it it's insane and there was you know I, I think it goes back to something that you talked about a lot as well is like this cult of individualism where she was talking about how you know she was in this position September last year where she was going to investors to try and invest in the new repeller that she wasn't directly the face of or a part of, but that would give it the seed capital for the existing team to make it work without her. And that she had this moment of think, thinking, I'm not inspired to do this. Like, I don't feel like I really want to put my time and energy into this. And, you know, she says something like, you know, is, is pitching to get capital hard or am I not just not passionate about this pitch? And I realized to my husband, you know, I'm not passionate about this. I don't want to try it this. And it's like what you're talking about is – putting your name, reputation, time, energy, and intelligence into salvaging a business that will keep 20 to 30 journalists and producers, et cetera, working during a pandemic Mm -hmm. is what you're actually talking about. And your lack of enthusiasm as a personal individual (laughs) is allowing you to not do that because you won't feel excited by having to spend three weeks doing that. And I just think like, 
that is exactly the thing with with white women is like we're socially conditioned to see ourselves as victims and because of that we feel like we can get away with a certain level of like selfishness and self-absorption because we don't think of ourselves as the bad guys we don't think of ourselves as the yeah because white men are the bad guys white men are the bad guys so they're the diehard capitalist horrible people that fuck over their employees and don't care and take the money and run and a completely ruthless cutthroat but we can't be like that so we can do the same things that they do but because we're so invested in like victimhood and goodness we just can't see the situation clearly and it's like you know she said oh I wish I'd had the wherewithal to kind of speak in a better way when I like fired everybody but you know I just didn't have it in me at the time and there's just absolutely no acknowledgement or awareness that she fed a group of people to the wolves she literally said (laughs) that when she shot man repeller she thought oh yay now I can be friends with my staff and then she goes but then, you know, I guess who wants to be friends with their old boss? And it's not like it's not like people don't it's not like the boss that's the problem. It's the fact <laughs> that you like literally fucked them up the ass in a pandemic. Yeah, and, and you and you're now admitting, which I think everyone suspected at the time, that you didn't have to. Yes. That it was entirely down to you deciding to pull the plug because you personally just didn't want to do it. And her kind of fun. saying, you know, it was my diary, what would it even be without me? It's like you didn't give it an opportunity to be something without you because you sabotaged it. On purpose. <laughs> I think it would have been completely fine without her. I think it would have been, like, there would have been this groundswell of supporters. And she said that. She was like, the following of Man Repeller and the following of me has splintered. Mm-mm. And that's true. There are people mm. that loved the writers of Man Repeller and what Man Repeller stood for that are yeah. not interested in Leandra at all. Yeah, I'm sub- subscribed to one of the, to Haley's newsletter. And I think she's really smart and has such clever takes on the world and it's just yeah she, she'd found these she had found or whoever had found and hired these people some really amazing writers and contributors so it's such a shame another kind of layer of nuance to this conversation is that Rachel has been accused of making anti-semitic kind of couching remarks in the way that she discussed Leandra in the intro and the outro Basically, she references the fact I, – I want to frame this by saying that Leandra brings up the fact that she is Jewish kind of as an example of the fact that she has experienced oppression and, and her people culturally have experienced oppression and that gives her a kind of understanding into systematic oppression that would give her more insight into racism maybe than a Gentile person. So it's not like Rachel mentions this completely without context, but she says something – in the intro about the fact that Jews were slaveholders in America and that this idea that Jewish people can't be racist towards black people is not true because of that fact. But that is, as many people have pointed out since, a trope that's kind of rooted in anti-Semitism and is actually called upon by uh, institutions like the KKK, white supremacist institutions. There's no evidence to suggest that like white Jews earned owned slaves at a rate that was like any higher than like non-Jewish slaveholders. In fact, it was lower on aggregate. And this notion that Jews were like highly instrumental in the slave trade is just factually inaccurate. Um, And they were also experiencing oppression in that period at the same time, although obviously not to the same extent as slavery. And then in the outro, she discussed this trope of the Jewish American princess, which is considered quite offensive and there's a great vox piece on why that stereotype is kind of offensive and rooted in anti-semitism and she talked about the fact that 
Jewish people get nose jobs and keratin their hair and change their surnames, like Ralph Lauren changed his surname and other kind of business founders have to assimilate and that because Jewish people have the ability to do that and black people don't, that they're not in a position to discuss oppression in the same way. I think that the comments were jarring when I heard them and were completely unnecessary and just undermined the value of what the whole interview is and still is. It doesn't remove how valuable the the interview is. And Rachel has said she's going to address it fully when the next episode comes out and she has removed all of those references. But I do think it's like an extra element to this that's obviously really important to talk about. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of that thing where, like you said, you listened to the episode a couple of times because you wanted to remove the context that was surrounding it. And I think the big one of the biggest issues both of us had with this podcast episode was the fact that Rachel let Leandra speak without interrupting her, which is why you got, you know, she said she wanted her to dig her own grave and it's why you got the content you did and it was probably the best thing for her to do for her to you know get like if you were a journalist that would be what you would essentially want to do because you Mm -hmm. want the person to keep talking but at the same time because she didn't because she didn't question her or kind of push her on any points but then later inserted dramatic music little sound bites of her talking to her producer about how bad Leandra's comments were and then it went back to Leandra talking it was quite just this uh jarring kind of listen where it really skewed the interview in one way and it kind of felt as well that that she was cutting parts and putting other parts in and you weren't hearing exactly the conversation as it happened like you don't even really know I'm assuming this was all taken from the new recording but you don't know whether some was taken from the new recording and some was taken from the old recording and you also don't know when this was recorded not that it gives like not that there's any excuse to Leandra for how little she's learn and how little effort she's put into uh becoming anti-racist but if this was recorded in july or august of 2020 verse now there's kind of a i don't know yes parts of of it were recorded straight afterwards and parts of it were recorded after the closure and yeah we spliced together as if it's the same interview and i think yeah i 100 percent like you said agree that the the kind of editorializing and like the dramatic brooding music which was really funny in some point yeah. <laughs> is it, it it like presented it in this way that it felt like it didn't even need to be presented in because she was just so yeah she just dug her own grave on her own and exactly it was, like that's like the jewish the jewish comments exactly just so unnecessary yeah. they just landed Leandra like had already a, a ton it. of bricks like you were just like oh my god did leander really just say that and then couching that with keratin treatments and nose jobs you're just like whoa 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 what the fuck are you saying yeah like, you don't, don't need say to say that. that it just then made you feel uncomfortable because you felt like you were on this team against this person but then the person that you were meant to be on the team with was then saying things where you were like well no i don't agree with <laughs> yeah, that either yeah. that's terrible yeah and i think it was i think it's a good example of like how podcasts don't have the rules of journalistic ethics and it's because podcasters aren't taught them and don't have to understand them. And I think you see that with something like this, where if this was a New Yorker piece or an essay for the New York Times or something, a lot of that editorializing that Rachel did could not be allowed to exist and it could still be a completely like 
career ruining or career damaging, incredibly uncomfortable read with the journalist presenting it in the like unbiased (laughs) rules of journalism way that you're supposed to. I think a lot of the interjections were relevant, like having Crystal on to explain more of the details and nuances of what it was like to work there and how that was obviously at complete odds with what Leandra was saying was really useful, for example. Mm. But it had this swelling dramatic music under it. The whole time Crystal spoke, it was so distracting. Yeah, I found the pet to threat thing really interesting, how Crystal was talking about how black women often find that, you know, they're brought in and they're treated as a pet and really, you know, like looked after and loved and you know in this kind of patronizing this, way like oh my god yeah and then you and then once you start actually standing up for what you believe in and questioning the systems and rah, rah, rah you're become a threat and crystal was saying she was locked out of meetings that were directly to do with her job and when she was asking why she should be in the meeting she was asked to make a case for the for why she should be allowed in a meeting like it was like really crazy stuff that Leandra really tries to brush aside by just being like, oh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I think we are both kind of in agreement with, you know, obviously the easiest thing to do here is to laugh and be shocked and be angry about the things Leandra said and how obviously little work she's done. And act like she's this weird unicorn. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's, like, it's like when we talked about Victoria's Secret a few weeks ago and how everyone, you know, was jumping on and rallying and being like, it's about time that thing got cancelled <laughs> when two years ago we were all having viewing parties about it. And and I think with Leandra, she's put herself in this position to be laughed at and to be ridiculed. But like we just mentioned before, she probably has done the exact same amount of work as millions of and millions of other people out there just turning a blind eye and kind of hoping that this whole Black Lives Matter debacle just washes over and everyone goes back to the way things used to be. And I think it's such a timely reminder, like just over a, a year on from Black Lives Matter, you know, the the marches were happening this time last year, that of how little has actually changed and how easy it is for some people to just go on with their lives pretending like nothing's happening. It's, it's quite horrifying and scary and I guess it's just a really important reminder to keep interrogating yourself and keep like having these conversations and keep learning and and and, like don't let people get away with just pretending like racism doesn't exist and that they're just horrible bosses yeah we were saying that before we just said it's a good reminder to check in with all the things we talked about doing in the past, all the things that we read last year and just making, you know, the biggest takeaway I think you and I had last year was that thing that we said before of focusing on what you can do in your everyday life and what you can control and actually not lying or <laughs> pretending and virtue actually just signaling. doing that. Pardon? And not virtue signaling. Yeah, not virtue signaling. But, you know, if you made a decision this time last year, you know, I'm going to make a, a pointed effort to – make sure that a certain percentage of the businesses that I spend my money on on any given month are owned by black or brown business owners or I'm going to make sure that what I'm watching on Netflix or the podcast I'm listening to or the books I'm reading are engaging with black history or Asian history or, or parts of, you know, history, literature, culture in any way that I might not know about opening up my, like, knowledge and education and understanding. If these are all the things that you kind of said to yourself 
this time last year, it's just worth, you know, like just checking back in again and thinking, oh shit, it's not about catching people out. It's about like, I feel like the Landra thing was a good reminder to me of, am I going to be hypocritical by getting on kind of laughing and joking about what she's saying? Because is there elements of that where I'm laughing really loud because I'm secretly terrified that I'm doing the same thing as her? Well, we had a conversation yesterday. We went out for coffee and we were talking and I and I basically did the same thing to you where I was like, I feel like I am not actively doing as much as I said I would. I'm not actively reading any anti-racist books at the moment. Mm-hmm. I have some on my bookshelf that I still haven't read. I have things that I said I was going to do that I'm not actively ensuring I'm doing every single week and checking in every single week. And then you said, well, I think one of the brilliant things if you have done like a lot of reading and a lot of learning is that it does switch your brain in a way that you actually do start to think differently and I know that we both do and it's funny because I was really same interrogating and questioning myself before we had this conversation and then I was like half the conversations I've had this week is how the football in England is racist and Mm. the structures behind that and and you know like why people who are black and brown in England don't feel like they can support the England team and feel scared when the games are on. It is a way that your brain shifts if you've done enough work. And I would hope that like everyone listening to the pod, not that that's excusing anything, but I'm saying like, I hope that everyone listening to the podcast kind of feels that way where even like when you walk down the street, really interrogating why you have the thoughts you do or when you're watching shows and all of the biases that you've been taught and like slowly undoing them. It's it's such a process. Yeah, no, you put that perfectly. I think that's like 100% right. And I think it's just, you know, something that Izzy and I feel very passionately about is like hopefully you don't think we do this, but we, we try not to like get on our soapbox and talk down to you guys or talk down to anyone because we're in no position of like authority on any of these topics. We're just working through them in the exact same way and muddling our way through and it's like with things like undoing ingrained racist tendencies or ingrained misogynistic tendencies that you have there's no like arrival point it's just this ongoing thing where you're catching yourself making a mistake and then you're correcting and then you're catching yourself making a mistake and then correcting and it's you know I might have felt a little uncomfortable with what Rachel said in terms of Leandra Medin's Jewishness but if I hadn't done a lot of reading about why it was anti-semitic and the tropes of the Jewish American or Jewish Australian princess and why that is so offensive and the history of slaveholding myths in America I would have not brought that up and I would have helped contribute you know what I mean it's mm. just like you don't we no one is born knowing this stuff we are just like muddling our way through I, trying to make sense of it I think it. I wouldn't have even picked up on it as well if Israel Palestine hadn't just happened and we hadn't done learning then so it yes. is like you just you just are learning as you go along about all these different things I, I basically didn't even know about anti-semitism for, until like I don't know last year mm-hmm. so it's just learning yeah, exactly. So, yeah, we just wanted to finish that by not being like, naughty Leandro, we're not racist and you are. It's like, yeah. not that. It's just like a shock. It's it's a, you know, I had a moment where I was like, oh, God, did, did this need to be released? <laughs> because it obviously just opened this one individual woman up to this giant dog pile. But as a cultural document and like an indicator of where our society is at right now, it is an amazing, amazing, amazing resource. Exactly. Exactly, and and like weirdly to bring it back to the football that I just mentioned. I don't know why the fuck I'm I want to talk about the football. The football, oh my God, but like I will. for example, England losing the football. So England lost against Italy. Everyone thought England was going to win. They hadn't won a 
like massive tournament or they hadn't gotten to a final in 55 years since 1966 or something so i don't know why everyone loves football so much in this country because they're really bad at it <laughs> but um careful they they it was you know this huge thing about them wanting to win and then england lost and because england lost and three of the players who missed their penalty shots were black there was this barrage of racism and like horrific comments aimed at these players and kind of similar to like the Leandra Medine thing being needing to be released I think England needed to lose the football to show the true underbelly of what is still going on in society that everyone thinks is covered up because we've posted some black squares Mm -hmm. you know like these things need to be need to be out there in the open to show like sure England might have the most diverse football team in its history but the country's still full of racists. Sure, Andrew Medin might have stepped aside at Man Repeller, but like millions She's of people. She's going to go into another very powerful position or might have if this hadn't come out and would have had the exact same values as she did at Man Repeller. Yeah. It's like, and she's indicative of a lot of the way that a lot of people that have very powerful positions in the media think and feel. So I think, yeah, you're like 100% right. These things just shed light on things and it's, it's, I feel at least, and I think our, this is what I love about our listeners, is that we're so – it feels like we're getting, thankfully, so past this idea of, like, if you fuck up or do something wrong, then therefore someone's in the bad pile and someone's doesn't do anything wrong, so they're in the good pile. It's just like, no, it's all just a spectrum of, like, behavior that we're all just trying to move in the right direction at the same time. And that's that whole thing, like, I know white fragility is, like, really made fun of now. Um and I kind of understand it, but it's like that whole concept of white fragility is just this thing of taking yourself out of it, stop being so invested in seeing yourself as this like good, kind person and just be looking at fixing the outcomes. Exactly. And then everything just becomes easier because you're just like, I'm going to fuck up. I'm not perfect. I don't know. Uh, and then everyone's just muddling through together. Okay, we are going to end with a starting moment of the week which is still to do with leandra medine and that is her like rando husband ab (laughs) who i know nothing about but i want to know everything about in one part of the podcast she randomly talked about how so she was going on and on about how she never wanted to create man repeller which is just such an annoying thing to say to anyone who liked or worked at man repeller but um (laughs) she then says that like the one good thing about starting man repeller was that her husband got back together with her when she started her company because she was successful and i was like that's it's hardly the man repeller way yes i was like <laughs> what you're saying that he got back with you because he realized you were cool because you started a company that is jade then that also just because she's someone that like projects so heavily it's so hard to tell whether that's true in which case jade or whether she's just literally invented that in her brain yeah and then wait this isn't even about ab but it's so funny she goes this is taken out of context, but it's still really funny. <laughs> she was like, you know, everything was going so well. And everyone was like, you were crushing it. And I was like, am I? And they were like, yeah. <laughs> I know, I loved that. <laughs> and then she's like, uh, Rachel's so funny, her delivery. Like, she's so dry. And, like, Leandra's obviously just not picking up how bored she is. And she's like, oh, so you were raising money, so Man Repella was profitable from the start. And she's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, wait, what else did she say about Avi? I feel like she said some really funny things about him. She said that he was going to, like, declare bankruptcy for her. And she was like, I can do it myself, you fucking asshole. Yes. 
He was just like, why are you bringing me into this podcast? He would have listened to it and been like, everything you said about me makes me sound so crazy. (laughs) I only got back to you because you were successful. I like do everything for you because I'm going to have to file for bankruptcy for you. I don't. I mean, I know nothing about the ins and outs of their marriage, obviously, because, like, you have become aware of him in the last, like, 72 hours. Yes. I don't really think men get back with women because they start succeeding in their jobs as a kind of trope. No. Unless you're kind of more confident, you've got a certain little shimmer about you because you're feeling successful at work. It's just so funny. And then, wait, and then Rachel goes, what did you say to me yesterday? It was so funny how Rachel was like, you know, and then you left Man Repeller and then you just, like, started a substack all about yourself. Yeah, she was like, you know, I think the criticism with the substack was that everyone was just like, stop making it about you, stop making it about you. And then you came back and you wrote this, like, 3,000-word substack and it was just all about you and it wasn't about the work or anything that you've learned. And then Rachel is, like, laughing. And she was like, you're laughing, but that's what I did. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, I know. She's like, I don't get why you're laughing. She's like, that's what I did. <laughs> Rachel's like, I know, I know. that's the funny thing. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, I mean, it is it is Jada for sure, but yeah. also um, serious. Yeah, but also serious. What else did you say that was so funny? I also just want to make a point of how, just to put in context how insane it is that she's talking about thinking she's poor. If you just look I was kind of doing maths about her outfits, for example, and I do understand that, like, things are gifted and loaned and stuff, but, like, an average outfit she wears – I haven't done the actual maths on this, but my mental calculations – an average outfit she wears in, like, an Instagram selfie, just the clothes, are between $7,000 and $15,000 per outfit, and she's doing, like, three of those a week. And she – the stack of bracelets she has on her arm, she's got, like, a Cartier Juste it's my dream bracelet – Knew they're like eight thousand nine hundred US dollars. She's got like love rings, love bangles, all this stuff. Like I say this just to showcase she's not on the borderline of being kind of rich. She's extremely, she's extremely, so extremely wealthy. Rich. And something I didn't realize till recently, watching Real Houses of New York, is that <laughs> in New York, I don't know why I didn't fully realize this, but all real estate is tiny. Tiny. So these people on Real Housewives of New York who are like millionaire, millionaire, millionaires have three-bedroom apartments on the Upper East Side and that means they paid like $15 million for them. So her apartment looks kind of tastefully cute and small. I just think about something like Pandora Sykes lives in this beautiful two-story, three-story, five-bedroom house and Leandra Medine lives in this kind of cute, cutesy little apartment. So you might think like, oh, she's just whatever. And it's yeah. like, no, that in New York money is – insanely expensive yeah 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 we kind of glossed over her saying she thought she was going to become homeless yeah yeah anyway we gotta go this is exactly when we launched the patreon we would have like done this in real time the day after the interview dropped and been a bit more open and it would have been like two hours long yes so look forward to that okay bye Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.